How are we doing, church? Doing good? Yeah. Awesome. You look good. If you've got your Bible, grab it, open it up, or turn it on, whatever, however you do it, to Numbers chapter 21 as we continue in this series called Greater Than. Uh, today we're talking about the reality that God is greater than our despair. Now, for some of you, when I just say the word despair, you start crying because you feel desperate and you're just in that place in your life. Um, and then there's others that don't even realize that um, really every road this, this world offers has one destination, and that is despair. Let me encourage you to do something. Uh, you got to know this, that the gospel is good news, but good news enters into bad places. And so the first half of the sermon or so is all going to be about the, the desperate situation in which we find ourselves. If you leave halfway through, then you're just going to be miserable, so you got to make it to the end, all right? So Numbers chapter 21, pick it up in verse 4. It's very important here, okay? So I'm a professional and so I've got to teach you how to pronounce these things so you don't embarrass yourself. Verse 4 says this, from Mount Or, we're going to go with a silent H there, okay? Everybody good with that? <clears throat> Unlike the fellow in my disciple group this week that did not. All right, it's from Mount Or. I know it's juvenile, isn't it? It gets worse if you don't like it, and you're going to hate it here. All right. <clears throat> from Mount Or, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God. Now, if you've been tracking along with us uh, during this series, <clears throat> you'll remember all throughout the book of Numbers and, and even Leviticus and Exodus that the people of God continue to complain. I mean, they just complain about everything, right? Because church people are different back then. And so the problem here is uh, that, that they're not just complaining. What they used to do is they would go to Moses and Aaron to complain about God, but now they're complaining directly to God, okay? And they're just going to throw Moses in there too. So verse 5, the people spoke against Moses and, I mean, against God and Moses, and here's what they say. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So it's the same complaint again. And I don't know about you, but, but I, you know, when I read my Bible, I think, what is wrong with these people? Why do they just keep complaining about the same thing over and over? How can they struggle with the same thing? Don't they remember two weeks ago when some of them started catching on fire when they were complaining? I mean, what? And as I hold it up, then my Bible becomes a mirror, and I go, uh-oh, <laughs> I kind of see me doing the same thing. Just by show of hands, anybody, anybody ever struggle with the same sin more than once? Okay, yeah, it's always front row, good, rest of you. Liars, we'll be there in a minute, okay? It's fine, sorry, welcome. Um, <clears throat> so, same people keep complaining about the same thing. Verse 6, then the Lord sent... Then the Lord sent fiery serpents, or poisonous snakes, that's what fiery serpents here means, among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So if you pay attention, here's what you just need to know. Every single one of us are snake bitten. Every single one of us are really, really desperate. All of us find ourselves in a world that is hopeless without the hope of Jesus. We are all snake bitten. We all, deep in our veins, have this poison of sin running through us. Now, I know you didn't grow up hearing that. I know you grew up hearing that you're a snowflake, and you're a rainbow, and you're a skittle. No, you're not, Scooter. You're really not. Now, don't, you can be mad at me if you want to, whatever, get in line. But don't email me, email Jesus, okay? Because here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3. It says this, for we, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. For all, that's the main word there. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not, we're not mistakers that need a life coach, all right? We're sinners that need a Savior. For all. Here's what this means. Think about the godliest person you can think of. Now, I know most of you are thinking of me. Ah, but, but whoever it really is, all right, it's not me. Your grandma or somebody like that. Sinner. Sinner. I mean, deep down in the core of her, bless your heart, being, she is, by nature and nurture, born a sinner. 
All right, it gets worse if you go to Romans 3, 10 through 12. Listen to this. I can promise you, none of you have crocheted these verses on your baby blanket. All right, here's what it says. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. That kind of hurts your feelings a little bit, doesn't it? Like, worthless? Yeah. No one does good, not even one. You see, the reality is, I hate to break it to you. All right, I know you think you're awesome. The Bible says, not that awesome. Not that awesome. You know what the problem is? The problem is not everybody else in this world. The problem is actually deep down in here that every single one of us, when we were born, we were born like the seagulls in Nemo, just mine, 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 mine. Everything is mine. We are wretched, black-hearted sinners by nature and nurture. It's just true. It's just true. But most people in Jacksonville will be like, whoa, 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 Pastor. All right, I'm a pretty good person. And, and the question is, compared to who? Compared to who? Compared to your college roommate? Okay, awesome. Great. Yeah, you are. Compared to the folks on the nightly news, you are right. You are a fine citizen. But we're not talking about good and bad. We're talking about dead and alive. Because what most people believe in the South is this. Even if you've been coming to church for a while. I mean, a lot of people think, you know, if you just come to church, it makes you a Christian. And you hear here all the time. No, 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 no. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sticking your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. That's not how it works. It's not an outside in. It's inside out. Because the reality is this. Here in Jacksonville, you know what? Um, we, a lot of times we can kind of dress up for the part and just kind of act like the, the environment that we're in. And it happens every weekend in church. You know? you know how I know? Because guess what? Right here in our city, we host the TPC and Georgia-Florida weekend. You understand it's the same people at both you know how I know? Because I'm at both, and it's all of us there. Am I telling the truth? You go to TPC, and you got on a visor, a nice collar shirt, and some khakis, and then you go to the Georgia-Florida game, and, and you, you fools got on jean shorts. You understand? And you painted your face orange. And you just act like whatever the environment that we're in calls us to act like. And then what happens on a Sunday, not that we really have a dress code here except for, you know, plaid shirts and jeans, but whatever your church clothes are, and then you show in here and kind of act this way. And... And it's, I'm telling you, it's not the truth. The message of the gospel is not God's good, you're bad, try harder, see you next week. That is not the message. The message of the gospel is not that there's a good God, lives in a good place, and that's where good people go when they die. Because if you think you're good, my question would be, how good? So tell me, how good are you? How good are you? And how good is good enough for God to let you into heaven? It would seem like if that's the way God was going, he would at least give you like a progress report, Right? Because how are you doing? I mean, what's your grade right now? Let's be honest. You don't even know. You know, pretty, pretty good. And if I were to say, how good do you have to be? Everybody's answer is this good. The line is right back here somewhere. But I'm pretty sure I'm over it. Can I tell you how scary that is for some of you? If good people go to heaven, let's just say it's 51%. If you do 51% of your life, you do good things, right? You do one more good thing than bad thing. I got really bad news for some of you. You don't have enough time left to make up for the 80s and 90s. You're, you're in trouble, okay? You're just in trouble no matter how good you are from here to there. You got a couple decades that you're in trouble over, all right? Me too, all right? I get that, I get that. Or if, if that was God's plan, wouldn't he, he, not only would he give you a progress report, but wouldn't he at least give you the scale by which he's gonna grade? I mean, does a 70 get in? Is it a 90? Do you have to be perfect? You see, so the reality is not only... Or are you not very good? Me either, but we don't even know how good you have to be to get in. And here's the thing. 
What if you were to examine yourself based on God's standard of the Ten Commandments, kind of the most famous standard in the whole world, would you still think you're good? The first, and we know them all, right? 1122 knows all the Ten Commandments. We did a whole series on them. The first one is this, that there's only one God. Have you ever treated a good thing like a God thing? That's a bad thing. We all have. Have you ever treated something temporary as if it was eternal and made a big deal of it? Yeah, every single one of us, all right? The second one is you shall have no other idols in your life. You know why I know that we fail this one? College football starts in two weeks, all right? And we worship that thing like a religion. I mean, we do. In fact, my team, my team, um, we all show up, and when we score, we literally sing together like a church choir, glory, glory to old Georgia, right? Now, it's clear that's his favorite team, but I don't think we're supposed to sing glory to the Georgia Bulldogs. Do you understand? And I know some of you are confused, but listen, when I open my Bible, I see two colors, all right? Red and black. Deal with it. That's just what's in there, so... I'm serious. Take it up with Jesus. I can't help it. All right. So <clears throat> the third commandment is don't use the Lord's name in vain. You ever done that? Ha <laughs> ha. It's, it's laughable. All right. The fourth one is this. Obey the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Who does that? Chick-fil-A. And you hate them for it this afternoon. You drive by and be like, oh, sweet. The line's not long. Ah, Sabbath. Fundamentalist. I can't get some chicken nuggets. That's what we do. The fifth one is you got to obey your father and mother if you've ever made it, you know, if you made it to two years old, you jack that one up. The sixth one is when we start feeling righteous, you know, thou shalt not murder, and you're like, ha, I never killed anybody. And then Jesus jacks it up for us because he raises the bar that says if you've ever hated someone in your heart, you've killed them. That's Aramaic for driven on JTB at 5 o'clock, boom, sinner, you're done. The seventh one, thou shalt not commit adultery. Some people are like, ooh, I'm not even married yet. How can I commit adultery? Jesus comes along again and says, all right, if you've ever lusted after a woman and you're like, next, 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 you can just go ahead. You don't have to finish your sentence. The eighth one is don't steal. And you're like, no, 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 I don't steal. I file share. Oh, that's funny. The Bible calls that stealing, all right? It's not sharing. And then the ninth one is thou shalt not lie. You know what? People that lie are called liars. I've heard, of, I, a guy told me one time, no, 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 I'm not a liar, just sometimes I lie. Like, what? You're dumb, all right? That's like saying, I'm not wet, I just have water on me. Okay. So I don't think it's a sin to be dumb, all right? My daddy used to say, if you're going to be dumb, be tough. That should be a proverb, all right? And then the last one, <clears throat> the last one is, thou shalt not covet, okay? Ladies, let me just share a Hebrew with you, word with you for covet. It, it's called um, Pinterest. Have you heard it? All right? Now, men, you know, we can laugh, but if you've ever been to a car show, a gun show, anything like that kind of show, we do it too, all right? That's what happens. So, on God's standard, just to the Ten Commandments, guess what? We're 0 for 10. We're 0 for 10 there. Here's another way we know that by, by nature and nurture that we are wretched, black-hearted sinners. Anybody that's ever parented a child, how long did it take you to realize, oh my goodness, they're cute, and they're adorable, and I love them, and they're wretched little selfish devil people. Are they not? I'm not saying your kid's not cute. I'm just saying wretched to the core of their very being. That's why Jesus had to come. Like, how about this? Did you have to teach your kid to bite? Like, where did your kid learn to bite? Hey, is dad biting mom to get the remote back on the co- Give me that. Mine. No. That comes from in here. How many of you had to train your four-year-old to lie they just figure that out on their own don't they i told reagan once reagan you our little five-year-old precious beautiful sinner uh baby (laughs) you cannot have a a treat before dinner sure enough before dinner you hear her in the pantry walk in there open the door there is chocolate literally on her face 
with the Hershey wrapper on the little shelf right there at Reagan? Did you eat the chocolate bar? No. <laughs> then why is it on your face? JP did it. <laughs> so you mean to tell me JP came in here, ate the chocolate bar, and then smeared it on your face? I don't know, Daddy. All right? Now, I'm not saying she's not cute, but she's just a sinner. Like, we are. I mean, nobody has to teach you that. Or how about this? You still think you're good, all right? We still haven't cracked the code yet. What if God didn't even judge you based on his standard? What if he just judged you on your own standard? Like, what if, this was Francis Schaeffer's idea. I wish I was smart enough to make up this stuff, but I can't. But this, this old Christian guy, he said, what if the day you stood before the Lord to be judged, and, and he said to you, uh, listen, you've had this invisible tape recorder around your neck your entire life. And so I'm not even going to hold you, hold you accountable to my word since you didn't read it or to believe it or didn't even know if I was here. So in fact, what I'm going to do, and he reaches on and he pulls off this invisible tape recorder and he says, um, every time you gave anybody else advice and told them what they ought to do, it came on. And any time you made a resolution or a promise or you said things like I ought to or I should or I promise or from now on, then it recorded those commandments that you gave to yourself. How would you do? How would you do? Could you even hold up to your own standards and own promises and own commandments? Me either. You see, here's the reality. Um, nobody's lied to you more than you. Nobody's bo broken more promises to you than you. Nobody's treated you as bad as you have. In fact, if somebody else treated you the way you treat you, I wouldn't be friends with them. Because how many times do we make promises? Have you ever done this one? God, I'll never do this again. How'd that work out, right? You pray that about the three or four times. And so the reality is just this, is that every single one of us, all of us, at the very core of who we are, we're snake bitten. We are, <clears throat> we are like the children of Israel. We rebel against God and in our rebellion, we got a problem. And the problem of the poisonous snake bite is not the external wound. It's not. It's the poison that's running through our veins. And so you can try to take care of the two little holes in your arm all you want to, but that is not the problem. The problem is that it's coursing through your veins, and it's killing you from the inside out, not the outside in. And so the reality is this. This is just true. Every single one of us, we're all snake bitten. And we fundamentally have two options. We can deny and cover, which is what most all of us do, or we can diagnose and cure. Those are the options. And there are certain ways that we just deny and cover it. One is, is, is you know, saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm really a pretty good person. But the other thing is we try to cover it a lot. You see, because we have this ache, we have this problem, we have this poison deep in here. And we know, hey, listen, the one thing that every world religion has in common, including Oprah, is something's wrong. Something's wrong deep in here that, that needs to be resolved. And so one of the ways that we cover up that ache inside is sometimes we turn to relationships. That we actually believe what's being pumped out of Hollywood, that if we could just find the one, 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 then, then, oh man, that he would complete me, and I will spend forever together with you, and all things will be great. You know, that's why those movies are like an hour and a half long, because when you get much past that, it gets weird, you know what I mean? It becomes problematic, and here's what happens. We take the keys to our own contentment. And we start handing it out to other broken, snake-bitten people. And what we essentially say is this, as soon as you act perfect, and as soon as you get your junk together, and as soon as you treat me right, and when all of you learn how to treat me perfectly, then and only then will I be fully and finally satisfied. I'm telling you, that will lead to a place of despair. All right? 
It's called codependency, by the way. They have meetings for it and stuff that you should attend. But when you take the keys to your own contentment and hand them out, I'm telling you, you are snake bitten and you're just trying to cover over it with some kind of relationship once again. And then some people, if they don't turn to relationships, they turn to self-help. This is, this, is one of these, this is one of the most popular in our world today. We know this because when you go into the bookstore, it's the largest section, that there are industries built on self-help. And self-help just basically says this, I know there's a problem in here internally, and so I'm going to have an external solution. That if I can just be a better version of me, that if I can lose some weight, if I can, you know, get the Rosetta Stone and learn a new language or do better in school or uh, do better at work or make a little more cash, if I can just be a better version of me, do some stuff, then and only then will I be fully and finally satisfied. And listen, we all know this. It's just a lie from the pit of hell. Now, I'm not anti a better version of you, all right? By the looks of it, most of us probably should work out a little bit, right? Do a push-up, no problem. But if we put our hope in the way we look, man, there are two significant problems with that. Time and gravity, they are not our friend. Because the reality is, over the next year, you might do awesome. You might join a gym and work out and eat paleo and Daniel fast all the way through and come in here next year, I mean, just shredded with cash falling out your pockets. Like, look at me now. But you know what the problem is? Time and gravity, I'm telling you. And if you got enough cash, now you can run down to Ponte Vedra and tighten it up for a little while. After a while, it starts looking weird, doesn't it? Let's just be honest. What in the heck is going on there? I am telling you. Now, again, if you need to paint the house, paint the house. But what I'm saying is that it ain't going to fix anything in here. It only delays it. It only delays it. No matter what you learn or what you look like or any of those self-help, the problem with self-help is that the problem is yourself. Deep down in here, there is a problem. Or, so what we do there is to say, okay, if that's, that, that doesn't work, I guess I'll turn to religion. I'll turn to religion, which religion is really just self-help with a robe and a set of rules. That's all it is. Religion is just this. I'm going to make me a better version of me so God won't be so ticked off at me and he'll be okay with me. And so I grew up in this religious culture of the South where I've told you this before. Our rules were you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with girls who do. And if you can just do those four things, then God will like you. The problem is those are always the best girls. You ever notice that? They just were. And in Dylan, the prom queen chewed. So where are we going to go? You know what I'm saying? And the reality is, is that that outside-in religion will crush you, crush you. Some of you grew up that way. You felt guilt upon guilt upon guilt. Some of you grew up in such a system that this doesn't even feel like real church. It doesn't even count for you. Let me tell you, bless you. Thank you for being here. It counts, all right? And so you tried hard on the outside, and the, promise, the problem is it's just exhausting because this is not an outside in, endeavor. And you began to treat um, your relationship with God not like a relationship at all, but like a religion that becomes just sin management. And you think, if I can do less bad things, then maybe God won't be so mad at me. And it's like taking your beach ball and trying to hold it under the ocean. That's what sin management is like. It's not about an intimate relationship with the Lord, but you grab that thing and you just hold it under the water. And if you're big enough and if you're strong enough and you grew up in the right kind of tradition, then you can manage your sin for a while, right? Quit saying bad words and quit drinking so much and, you know, that sort of stuff. But you know what? Ooh, you get a little cold and you'll chug NyQuil like a crazy person. That, that kind of sickness starts happening. And what begins to happen is you've got this fake you 
that's doing just fine, but the real you is exhausted trying to hold that beach ball under the water. And here's the problem when your arms get too tired to manage your sin. When that beach ball, I mean, try it, seriously, the next time you're out in the ocean. First of all, it's hard to keep it under there. And then one little wave or your suntan lotion gets on your fingers and it gets slippery or your arms give out. And when that beach ball comes up, it does not just gently protrude out of the water, but it explodes out of there in a mess. And that's what happens when you turn to religion to try to cover up the reality that we've got the, the, the poison of sin running through our veins. It just doesn't work. And so then, eventually what people do, some people turn to the world. They just like, okay, well, forget all that. Forget all that. I'm going to do what I want with who I want when I want. And God, you ain't the boss of me, I'm the boss of me. And so if I have this appetite, then I'm going to fill it. Whenever, whenever my appetite tells me I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. And I don't care, I don't care about later, I just, I'm about instant gratification. And so I know I've got some problems in here, and so I'm just going to self-medicate. I'm going to drink too much, or I'm going to take prescription drugs that aren't prescribed to me, or are not prescribed to that, or I'm going to take illegal drugs, or illegal in some state drugs. I'm going to do something to numb what's going on in here, and I'm going to party like a rock star. And I don't care who it hurts, because I feel good now, I don't care what it does to anybody else that loves me then, including me. And a lot of folks, a lot of folks you know, so it began to go down that road. Or, if we don't go down that road, because we think, no, you know what, that lacks wisdom, and I need to keep my job, and I'm not going to throw it away that way. Then what we do is we turn to the world in the shiny things of this world. We go for accomplishment. Or, just cash and prizes. And, and really, around here at 1122, we lovingly call this the cul-de-sac of stupidity. And that means that we think some stuff, we think some stuff, it's going to do something for our soul. And so we go after some stuff. And I will tell you, some stuff will make you feel good for a little while. But the moment that stuff lets you down, and you realize, oh, that stuff let me down. Ooh, I know. I need some more stuff. Well, then welcome to another lap in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. All right? Look, kids, Big Ben Parliament, here we go again. And we go around that over and over and over. And listen to me. I am not anti-stuff. All right? Get you some stuff. Stuff's okay. Anybody that's a good parent loves to give stuff to their kid to bless them, to make them excited. You never want to give your kid stuff that gets in the way between you and your kid. So there was a season when I was traveling and I would come home and I would get my kids some stuff and they would be excited. And I like to give them stuff. I mean, there's no point as a good dad do I want to today, I don't want to go to my kids' rooms and get all their stuff and drag it to the front yard and catch it on fire and say, love me now, children. No. But when I would, when I would be traveling and I would get home, and JP would run to me, and his first question was, what'd you get me? Nothing, all right? Because I, don't, I would never give you stuff that would get in between me and you. By the way, here's what you should do. If you travel a lot, and, and, you're, and you got a little boys in the army men, or get whatever the girl equivalent is, go to Walmart, you get like 1,000 army men for $10, and then if you forget in the garage, you can keep them. What'd you bring me from Brazil? Army men. What about Africa? Army men, all right? Army men are from everywhere. That's just for free, all right? But here's the thing. I just didn't want the stuff to get in between us, nor do I want to take all of his stuff away. I want to play with my kids with the blessings I've given them. But what I don't want them to do is what so many of us do is to put our hope in stuff. Because stuff can pique this kind of feeling in you. And if you begin to trust that, it will lead to despair. And here's the thing. I don't know what it is. Something just about being born on this earth that we can very, very quickly fall in love with the shiny things of this world, and it starts at a very, very young age. Uh, last week, or two weeks ago, 
Gretchen and the kids were visiting her parents up in Virginia. Um, uh, her mom has a, has a little store with stuff in it, you know, fine stuff. And she let Reagan go shopping in that little store. And so this cul-de-sac of stupidity bait happens at a very, very young age. Gretchen interviewed Reagan on the way out of the store. Check this video out. You've been looking at that shop. At Grandma's shop? Mm -hmm. What kind of good stuff does it have? It has a lot of good stuff. Is that your new doll? Yes. Have you named her? No. So you just went down to Mama's shop and got a hat and a doll and a bracelet and a purse? I can name her whatever. What? I got a hat, bracelet, doll, a hat, bracelet, doll, and a purse mm -hmm. right there. Wow. Well, I just got the purse in the morning. Yeah. But I kind of feel good with this on. You feel good with that on? Why? <laughs> well, it is Betsy Sweet. Johnson, so. It starts early, doesn't it? Now, Gretchen had to let me know that Betsy Johnson wasn't like a neighbor of Mamaw, that she's kind of a big deal. She said it's like the Under Armour of pink hats. I was like, ooh, okay, all right. I, but it, it's true. Like, you see, my little five-year-old, we didn't teach her to sit there like driving Miss Daisy, you know what I mean? She just gets this on. She's like, oh, I kind of feel good with this on. And it's true. But if she thinks that when, the, when that fades away, all right, because that's stuff, I mean, it's fine stuff. But when that fades away, if she thinks I need more stuff to chase after that feeling, then look, kids, big man parliament, let's take another lap in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Can I just confess my latest lap in the cul-de-sac? Uh, you know, we opened Hope's Closet last, this past Friday. Wait, thanks for showing up. It was an incredible grand opening. Way to go. Keep coming. Keep shopping. <laughs> Which, by the way, is, is evidence every day that stuff does not satisfy. Do you realize that? That entire place is full of your stuff that you used to love, and now you're giving it away. And you're going in there. We all, we're going in there and buying somebody else's stuff. Like, oh, this is amazing. Somebody's like, I just gave that away. That's what's happening on a daily basis around here now, all right? And so here's what happened to us. On Tuesday, we did like a soft launch so the people could practice, you know, like checking us out and all that. And so the staff goes over there and buys some stuff. And so Gretchen texts me. She says, I'm at Hope's Closet. I said, God, I'll be there in a second. And so I go over there and she's got the kids. And then she leaves the kids with me. Never a great idea. She's like, I'm going home. You got the kids. Great. The kids say, because we got toys over there. The kids say, um, hey, can we, get some, can we get some toys? Yeah, man, they're $3 each. Get you some stuff. And so JP gets some camo under armor, you know, and, and Reagan gets some toys. And I was really excited because when people at Hope's Closet shop there, in their bag with their stuff, they get this card that says, don't lose hope. And people can uh, text in, hashtag don't lose hope, and text their prayer request. And then we as a church, our prayer ministry, prays for every single person that, that sends that in. So I thought that was cool. I get my bag full of stuff, you know, somebody else's junk, get it. And we're heading home. We get home. I'm showing Gretchen all the stuff. We got JP got his stuff. And then Reagan pulls out a toy and shows it to mom. Says, Mom, look what I got. And Gretchen goes, we donated that. <laughs> yep. There you go. There you go. Look, kids, big man parliament. Here we go. Another lap in the cul-de-sac. <clears throat> That's just true. Now, here is the reality of all of that covering. The relationships, the self-help, religion, turning to the world, whether it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or the shiny stuff of this world, they all have a destination, and that destination is despair. And we live in a world, we live in a world 
that baits you to walk down a pathway and then blames you for getting where that pathway leads. I mean, seriously, how many VH1 behind the musics do you have to watch to understand that it's not fame and fortune that satisfies? And yet everything else in our culture baits us down that kind of pathway. And so all of those pathways, whether you realize it or not, all of us are snake-bitten. And either, hopefully today, hopefully today, you'll move past denial and cover and begin to move to that place of diagnosis and cure. And the reality is this. The reality is that it is the grace of God that brings you to that place of despair when you realize that you're snake-bitten and that in and of yourself that you're hopeless. That is actually, that is God's grace that leads you to that place. It would be the wrath of God to do what Romans 1 says and turn you over to your own sinful and selfish desires. To let you just keep going around this cul-de-sac of stupidity or the merry-go-round of normality and never realize that there's more to this life than just the stuff of this world. And so, it is actually the grace of God that brings these people to the point where they realize that they are bitten by a poisonous snake and if they don't do something about it, if they don't do something about it, then they're going to die. And it's actually the grace of God that can lead you to that place, that place that feels like despair. I mean, I read this, this horrific story in preparation for this sermon. There was a missionary in India working with a leper colony, and there was a little girl in that colony, and she had this very, very rare disease um, where she did not feel pain. This little toddler girl had no feeling of pain in her fingertips or in her toes or in her extremities. And the way they found out, they just thought she was tough when she was really little. And the way they found out is when she was a toddler, her mom walks into her room and says, who gave you finger paint? She didn't have finger paint. She bit off the end of her finger because she didn't feel it. She just painted her room with her blood. Oh, and it got worse. The story got worse. By the time she was 10, she had no hands and feet. She died in her 20s. And here's why. Because she did not have the gift of pain. See, we think pain is punishment. Did you realize that oftentimes it's God's grace in our life because pain keeps us away from the things that are, he- that are hurting us, that despair can actually be the thing that leads you to get over yourself and go find a cure. Because if you've put, been putting your hope in, your, in yourself, then, then you're going to find yourself in a hopeless situation one day. But here for us and here in the text, God makes a way. So in verse 7, It says, and the people came to Moses and says, we've sinned. You see, they finally get to the point where they realize there's a problem. We have sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent. By the way, in Hebrew, the word for bronze, fiery, and poisonous are essentially the same word. They sound almost identical. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And folks, the reality is this is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That every single one of us are snake bitten, and it's not until the point where you get to that point of despair and you realize that I have an internal problem that requires an eternal solution. But God has made a way. And the reason I know that this is a picture of the gospel is because by the time we're going to jump over to John chapter 3, and Jesus is going to show us that this is a picture of the gospel. You see, here's the point. The point is that we are all snake bitten. You can either continue to deny it and cover it up, or diagnose it and be cured. The hope found in Jesus is greater than your despair. 
You see, all throughout the Scriptures, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the accounts of the earthly ministry of Jesus, what you'll see time after time is you will see people that Jesus bumped into that were snake-bitten, like down in the soul, that they had a poison problem in their veins, and yet they had rejected God and they'd turned to other solutions. Like, for, for instance, you, you see him bump into the worldly rebel when he bumps into the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. I do not know what was going on in that woman's life that led her to believe that an adulterous affair was better than God's best for her. For her. But yet, what we find there is when they bring this woman to Jesus, he says this. He says, I do not condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Also, <clears throat> Jesus bumps into people like people that had experienced worldly success. In the Gospels, Jesus encounters this man known as the rich young ruler. And the guy comes to Jesus. And the reason he comes to Jesus is because something's missing deep down inside. He's snake bitten and he doesn't even realize it because he's got a bunch of stuff. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus essentially says, look, dude, you're missing one thing. You're missing one thing. You see, you don't need more stuff. You need a Savior. And the stuff has gotten in the way of your Savior. And so you got to get rid of that stuff and get focused on the Savior. You lack one thing. And the Bible says that that man went away sad. The reason he went away sad is because all he tried to do is take care of himself externally and didn't do anything about his snake-bitten condition. When you get to John chapter 3, it's one of the most famous chapters in the New Testament. And even if you're new to Bible study, you'll see why in just a little while. And here he bumps into a man that's religious. A man that is also snake-bitten to the core, and his pathway of rebellion has been to turn towards religion, to come up with a bunch of rules, and if he just obeys all the rules, then maybe he would be okay with God. But that doesn't do anything about the problem of the poison running through his veins. And so in John chapter 3, Jesus bumps into this guy named Nicodemus. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, a Pharisee was a very, very religious man. I mean, varsity, top shelf guy. And so Jesus automatically responds to him in kind of a weird way. Like, if you look through the Bible a lot, a lot of times Jesus will just answer questions that nobody asks, you know? So the guy just basically walks up and says, hey, man, we know that you are from God. And so Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That, that's Greek for, do what? <laughs> so I just wanted to come here at the end of this service, Jesus, and tell you, you know, Rabbi, you're obviously from God, because you, you know, I saw you feed everybody with a fish sandwich the other day, and you just had a couple. And then Jesus says, well, unless you're born again, then you, you know, you can't get in the kingdom of God. And, and Nicodemus is like, oh, hi, huh? Huh? Uh, that seems gross, Jesus. I, I don't know what you're talking about, but let's try something else. So verse 5, Jesus answered, well, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I have said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, huh? See, that's why I'm here to interpret this for you people. I'm a professional, all right? That's what he's doing. So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's a professional religious guy. I mean, this guy's varsity, you understand? First-round draft pick kind of thing. 
He is a big deal. And so Jesus is talking to him about these spiritual things, about being born again. And when he talks about that, it just kind of grosses Nicodemus out. He's like, I don't understand that. And so he switches metaphors, and he's getting off the born again thing. Now he's talking about the wind blows, right? Wherever the wind blows. Where does it come from? Where does it go? Where does the wind blow? Cotton Eye Joe. I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. That's what, that's what Nicodemus is doing here. He has no idea. And so he says, Nicodemus in verse 9, how, Nicodemus says, how can this be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? In other words, didn't you grow up in Sunday school? You're not paying attention? I thought you were supposed to teach people this stuff and you don't understand the most basic of basics here. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Now, why does Jesus go plural? Because he is the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity, one God in three persons. Jesus is not just a crazy man that thinks he's a walking party and that's not what's going on. He now is talking about the reality that he, that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is speaking on behalf of God. And he says, but you do not realize our testimony. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, he says, I'm God here in the flesh. And then what he's going to do in verse 14, I say all that to you to just set this up. In verse 14, what Jesus is going to do, because he's a master teacher, is he's going to connect um, he's going to connect Nicodemus to a Bible story that Nicodemus would know really, really well. He's going to point back to what we're talking about, about today. He's going to explain the gospel. He's going to explain how to be saved by pointing this religious teacher back to Numbers 21. And so, <clears throat> when Jesus says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you remember that story, Nicodemus? Nicodemus, all the lights on his dashboard are going off. Oh, finally, I know what you're talking about. Because Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That means that in order to get into Pharisee school, you had to memorize every verse in the entire Old Testament. That's a lot of verses. I mean, from beginning, from Genesis all the way to Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, all right, all the way through. He memorized every single one of them. And I know some of you folks that grew up in Southern Baptist sword drills, you're like, I know four verses out of Romans. Sweet. They knew every single verse of the entire Old Testament. So what Jesus is doing here now is he is taking Nicodemus back to a, a, a historical event in the Scriptures that is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe you've heard me say this before, but I'm the kind of preacher that believes the whole book, okay? I believe it cover to cover. I think the whole thing's inspired, infallible Word of God. I believe the leather's genuine, all right? I'm all in. And every single thing in the Bible, it's not really about you. It's all about Jesus. It's a big glowing sign that just says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so what Jesus does here is like, hey, you remember that deal you, you learned in school about Moses and the serpent and that whole thing? He's like, got it. So he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus says, remember back, the Israelites were snake-bitten. It was an internal problem, not an external problem. It wasn't about rules they had to obey. They had to do something about what was going on on the inside of them. And then God told Moses to make a fiery serpent and put it on top of a pole. And whoever would look upon that bronze serpent on that pole would, would see it and live. And then Jesus says, that's why God sent me. That's why God sent me. That, that I have come, that I would be lifted up. That whoever would believe in me would live. He goes on to say this. Verse 16, the most famous Christian verse in the Bible. So even if you're not like a you know, Bible person, you've seen John 
right? John 3.16 was given in reference to, to help, help Nicodemus understand how um, the, the snake in the wilderness being lifted up was a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For, for God so loved the world. That means you, Nicodemus, and that means you right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's how the ESV says it. The King James is a little better there because it says only begotten. All right? Because, because the word begotten means of the same essence. So I have, like a, I have one and only motorcycle, but it's not my only begotten motorcycle. I have one and only son. So that means like dogs beget dogs and cats beget cats and God begets God. That Jesus is the only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That word believes there is the Greek word pistuo. And it's tough that it gets translated believe because there's a big difference between believing in and believing that. Most of us as Americans, we think when we hear the word believe, we're like, yeah, I believe in God. Like I believe in, you know, college football and NASCAR. Like I believe that those things exist. But there's a difference between believing in. Pistuo means to believe, to trust, to commit your whole life into. The best illustration I know of is this. There is a team down in Gainesville, and I believe that they exist, okay? I do not believe in such team. You can, that's fine, but I don't, all right? I believe in my team. That, it's different. It's really, really different. And Jesus says, whoever puts their faith in or their trust in or believes in the Son would not perish but have everlasting life. And remember, he is tying this to just like the Israelites that were snake-bitten. All they had to do is get to the point where they would say, I, I, you know, I can't do this on my own. I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm snake bitten, and I've got to do something. I'm hopeless, God. I need help. And God says, I'm providing you a way. You can't do this on your own. Get over yourself and look up. Look up at the bronze serpent on the pole and live. And in the same way, we are snake bitten. We got a sin problem that's on the inside. An, an internal problem that requires an eternal solution. And so Jesus comes and says, God loved you so much that he provided a way. He provided a way. And the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross. And that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness. You see, back in, back in Numbers 21, God took the problem, the snake, and lifted it up on the pole, and that actually became the way of salvation. And so God takes his perfect son, Jesus, and puts him up on the cross, and he becomes our sin to take away our sin. And then he says this in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, that's grace. That's grace. That's why we're a movement for all people. That's why I'm here to tell you, you're not bad. I'm not telling you you're bad. It's wait, You're dead. Those are fundamentally different. Snake bitten is not just about being bad. Snake bitten means that we're fundamentally dead and we need an antidote. We need a Savior. And so God did not come here to condemn you. He didn't send Jesus to condemn you. There's a big difference between condemnation and conviction. The Bible says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is when you feel guilty and it causes you to run away from God. God's saying, I sent my son Jesus not to have you run away from me, but to feel convicted, kind of a, a, a good or godly guilt that draws you to the forgiving arms of the Heavenly Father. Those are fundamentally different. That's why this is a movement for all people. For all people. And he goes on in verse 18 to say this, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, he gives us this picture. 
I don't know of a better picture of pistuo or belief or faith than that of a stool. But back in Numbers chapter 21, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, here's the problem. Everybody was snake bitten. And there was no denying it. And when people got to the point where they realized there's nothing I can do about this, God makes a way and says, if you will look up to this bronze serpent on the pole, you'll live. And so then when Jesus came, comes and he talks to Nicodemus, he goes, it's like that. Every single person is already condemned because they are by nature a sinner, the Lord of their own lives. But God has sent me to be lifted up on the cross, and that counts for you. When Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, that means it counts for you. You see, condemnation feels like your sin is bigger than the cross. Conviction is, is the reality that his cross is so much bigger than your sin, so you can come to him. And to believe in, to believe in, to trust, to commit your whole life into, is what you are doing in your chair right now. You know how I know you believe in your chair? It's not because you know all the facts about your chair. Like, most of you don't know the material it you know, was used to build it or how it even got here. You just got to the point in your life today when you walked in and you didn't pray a prayer to your chair. You didn't get to your prayer and be like, oh, dear chair, you look kind of awesome, all right? And one day I'm going to put my faith in you. No, 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 no. You didn't sing your chair a song. You didn't get, oh, great and mighty chair, you know, look what my chair did for me. You didn't do any of that. But at some point today, I know, I know that you put faith in that chair because you transferred the weight of who you are from you over to the chair. That's what it means to believe in John 3.16. That's what the word pistuo means, that you would transfer the weight of who you are and say, okay, I get it, I'm snake bitten. I get it, I'm snake bitten. And there is not a cure that I can come up with on my own. I can numb it for a while, but eventually it leads me to despair. And that God loved you. And I'm not talking about somebody else right now. I am talking about you, regardless of what you've done and when you've done it or even what you plan to do. That God made a way for you to look, to look up at Jesus on the cross, to believe in him, to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ and to live and to be saved. And that's for anybody. You see, before I give you the opportunity to do that, I want to read for you, <clears throat> I want to read for you the testimony of a man named Charles Spurgeon. Now, there's a lot of you here, and you don't even, you're like, where's he live? Well, he's dead. He, uh, he was a preacher. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He was, in the 1800s, he was like the dude. He was the most famous guy everywhere. He had like the first mega church in the history of church outside of like, you know, the Bible. It, it, he, was, he was an incredible, incredible preacher, theologian, evangelist, etc. <clears throat> and at one point, he recounted how he got to that place where he realized that he was snake bitten, that he was snake bitten. And instead of trying to do 50 things to try to be a better version of him, he got to the place where he surrendered his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He says these words, Charles Spurgeon. He says, I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. While I was going to a certain place of worship, I turned down a side street and I came to a little primitive Methodist church. And in that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists and how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, so, you know, maybe it's like us. But that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And the minister didn't come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, he went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. His text, Isaiah 45, 22. 
Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me, he said in broad Essex. Many on you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. And when he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. Struck right home. And he continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death. If you don't obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could and said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I've been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. And there and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instance and sung with the most enthusiastic of them. Oh, the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before, just trust Christ and you can be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered, and now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That happy day when I found the Savior and learned to cling to His dear feet was the day never to be forgotten by me. I listened to the Word of God That precious text led me to the cross of Christ. And I can testify that the joy of that day was utterly indescribable. I could have leaped. I could have danced. There was no expression, however fanatical, which would have been out of keeping with the joy that hour. Many days of Christian experience have passed since then, but there has never been one which has had the full exhilaration, the sparkling delight which that first day had. I thought I could have sprung from my seat in which I sat, 
And I could have called out with the wildest of those Methodist brethren, I am forgiven, I am forgiven, a monument of grace, a sinner saved by blood. My spirit saw its chains broken to pieces. I felt that I was an emancipated soul, an heir of heaven, a forgiven one, accepted in Jesus Christ, plucked out of the miry clay and out of the horrible pit, with my feet set upon a rock and my goings established. Between half past 10 o'clock when I entered that chapel and half past 12 o'clock when I was back again at home, what a change had taken place in me simply by looking to Jesus. I had been delivered from despair. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And my question is this. So what about you? I mean, what about you? Have you ever come into that place of despair? I mean, true soul despair, not because of your circumstances, but because of the situation of your very own soul, where maybe today you could admit, maybe for the first time, uh-oh, I think I'm snake-bitten. I mean, I've chased after the things of this world, and in some areas have done quite well. I've got relationships and a family and stuff and a job, and, and for some reason, it's just not doing it right here in my soul. I think I'm snake-bitten. I think I'm snake-bitten. Well, the good news is that the gospel enters that very place and says, well, then look upon Jesus. There's not 50 things that you have to do. There's just one. It's just surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then the one that became sin on your behalf, when he said it is finished, when he died on the cross, fundamentally becoming a Christian means this. You believe that counted for you. You think that when he says it is finished and he made full payment for our sin, that is the antidote for the poison of sin running through our very veins. Forever and ever, once and for all, it is finished. And that can count for you. So if you believe, you trust, you transfer your weight from you saying, all right, I'm the boss of me, and you transfer it to say, okay, Jesus, you are my Lord. You surrender. And then the Bible says that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that He is Lord, that you will be saved. Snake bitten no longer. But you've been diagnosed, and you can be cured. So I want to give you that invitation, the same invitation that was given to Charles Spurgeon 150 years ago, and the same invitation that was given to me 25 years ago, that this could be today, that you could stop and you could look upon Jesus on the cross, and that you could surrender. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes, not because it's magical or super spiritual, but just simply so you could block everything else, and I need you to answer this fundamental question. What about you? Are you snake bitten? Are you ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ? If that's you, just tell him. Just tell him right where you are. If that's you, in the depths of your soul, look upon what Christ did on the cross and understand that it counts for you. That's right, even you. No matter how good you've been or how bad you've been, it counts for you. And in this very moment, in this very moment, the darkness can peel away and you can see the sun of salvation. And so if that's you, then just tell him. Just pray. Just admit that you're snake-bitten. Believe. Trust in Jesus. Confess Jesus as your Lord. And if you would do that this day, would you just raise your hand high and say, all right, God, here I am. God, here I am. <laughs> I look to you, not to myself any longer. Raise them up high and say, God, here I am. I surrender to you, God. And the Bible would say with every single person, not because your hand's in the air, but because you have surrendered your life to Jesus at this very moment, then you are being saved, that you are being cured, that you are being forgiven that you are being adopted into the family of God. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you that you so loved us that you sent Jesus. God, that you sent Jesus into a place that was infected 
by those fiery serpents everywhere we go. And God, He did not come to condemn, but so that we might be saved by putting our trust in Him. And Lord, I thank You that it was Your love, it was Your love that drove Jesus to that cross. That He endured Your full wrath, Your justice, the payment for the sin that we deserve, that we, that we may be the beneficiaries of His perfect life. God, I thank You for that salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you please stand? This is a really important part of what we do in our service. That we respond to the gospel. We respond by singing and worshiping God because He's worth it. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings. We bring our first and our best because He loved us first by giving us His best in Jesus. And we respond by coming to the altar and casting all our cares upon Him because He cares for us. Let us respond.